Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. there welcome to episode 128 of love that album podcast my name is morris thank you so much for downloading i have one question for you why'd you do it because you want to hear my two special guests that's the reason why i'm sure of it from somewhere out not quite in sydney but in the outer reaches of sydney guitarist of the shane pacey trio and the bondi cigars welcome back mr shane pacey Good morning, evening, or afternoon, whenever you are, whenever, wherever you are. And welcoming back from the wilds of Boston, Ms. Kerry Gately-Fristo. Hello, hello. Nice to be here. It's lovely to have you both back. I think, although this is the first time that the two of you have been on the one show together, and I don't know, I just have this feeling in the back of my head that this won't be the last time that this particular combination works together, because I know, just, I have a good feeling. We're here to talk about the 1979 album by Marianne Faithful, Broken English, and it's an important album for a lot of reasons that we're going to get into. But before we start talking about Marianne Faithful, I want to talk about you two people. First of all, Shane. Yes. What's happening in your world? I mean, I know what's been happening in your world, but <laughs> tell the listeners what's been happening in your world. Same thing I always do. I'm playing gigs, writing songs, preparing for a new recording. Did a gig last night. Um, it's morning here and I played in Canberra, which is a bit of a drive from where I am, and did a couple of sets, got back in the car and rushed home so I could get a decent few hours sleep so I could do this. That is so yeah, dedicated. Just, oh, yeah, I am. I tell you, I'm, I'm a super nerd when it comes to music, so I'm always happy to ramble on about it. Ramble on! Last time we spoke, you made mention of 
well, I don't know if you released it as an album, but you put out a few tracks where you sort of went away from the blues side, away from the funk side. There was more indulging your singer-songwritery type of phase. It was just you and a guitar in your front room. I think you put a few tracks up on SoundCloud. Are you doing anything more with that? I might do. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of I'm getting my trio ready to, to do something with the keyboard player, so it won't be for a while. I still come up with things with my acoustic guitar, and when I've got enough again. That was like a backlog of songs that I'd written that can't just leave them in the guitar case. I'll have to <laughs> record them, mm. and I couldn't really think of do it except by myself. And I think it's it's out there. It's on all the platforms. I haven't had any figures yet, but I still get messages from people saying that they're, they've streamed it or downloaded. I didn't really put it out to make money, so I didn't really care. I had some feedback from a couple of listeners who said, where can we find this? So yep. I went and pointed them to it, and they got back and said, wow, this is really, really, really good. So maybe an album is in order. Yeah, you go to Spotify. I'm a bit of a closet folky, really. As you know, we've discussed it before, and if, if I'd have had my kind of druthers or my time again, I probably would have got the acoustic guitar out and gone to the folk clubs and there wasn't much opportunity for that kind of thing here in Australia anyway but yeah that's what I do really when I sit at home I don't really plug in my electric guitar and disturb the neighbours I just finger pick and mm. write lyrics and <laughs> so, yeah. you, I don't know why you don't want to disturb the neighbours I take great pleasure in it so Carrie what's been happening with you does the prowler still need a jump <laughs> It still needs a jump. It does. I'm uh, working and writing, uh, listening to listening to music, uh, watching films, getting ready for the holidays. I guess now, but just I've I've been working a lot, and unfortunately, my commute is kind of a drag. So I'm uh, catching up with all my podcasts. So that's mm. good. I've been writing a lot for work. So I have not done a lot of my own writing, but I'm hoping to make a change and start doing a lot more of my own writing again. We need more writings from you because uh, the uh, Prowler Needs a Jump blog is really, really wonderful. Some great insightful film writing there. When I thought I was going to be speaking on another podcast about Outland, I used your uh, article as a big resource. Circumstances didn't allow for it in the end, but it was still terrific read i love that that's a great film love mm, that one certainly is all right so what are we here to do we're here to talk about marin faithful's album broken english from 1979 so what we're going to do is we're going to go take a quick break let joanne give you the contact details and where else you can listen to this i forgot to mention this show is now part of the pantheon podcast network so if you want to catch up with a whole lot of other music related podcasts then you can go to rockandrollarchaeology.com or just search for pantheon podcasts in the browser of your choice and check out what else is out there there's some other really really good music discussion podcasts it's nice to know that there are a lot of other music nerdery type of people out there get onto that joe will give you the contact details and we'll be back in just a couple of moments to talk about marion faithful you're listening to episode 120 28 of Love That Album. I got a stack of records here, a stack of records there. I got records scattered all over everywhere, but I'm... We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes of Love That Album at lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. I've been 
through the records an hour or two, and I've about decided what I've got to do. When you're watching movies, are you sick of remakes, reboots, reimaginings, reinventions, and Reese Witherspoon? Are you fed up with movies where giant robots try to remake Into the Dragon? Do you think that torture porn is vastly inferior to 1970s drive-in porn? Do you find Botox actresses with fake tits and action heroes with no chest hair a turn-off? Do movies where no single shot lasts more than two and a half seconds piss you off? Yeah, me too. That's why I do Paleo Cinema Podcast, a podcast for films more than 20 years old. So if you think that Sid Charisse is a guy and that Myrna Loy is a kind of metal, you need Paleo Cinema Podcast. Go to paleo-cinema.com and do yourself a favour. And we're back, Morris over here, Shane pretty close to over here, and Kerry a long way over there. We're talking <laughs> about Marianne Faithful and her 1979 album Broken English, but as we always do on this show, we don't just focus on the one album, we're going to sort of do a little bit of history and talk about some other records that led up to that. This is an album I'd really wanted to bring to the show for quite a long while, and I asked several people over the years, hey, you want to talk about Broken English? And I was surprised by how many people say, you know, I've never listened to it, or oh, I've heard one or two tracks. I'm not really willing to sort of get into it to give it a try. I, I just, I was so surprised. And then, boom, I had the light bulb turn on in my head, Shane. I thought, hang on, you listen to everything. <laughs> So I sent the note to you, and when you said, yeah, absolutely, I love that album. And then I made a post about that I'm finally going to get round to it. And then, Kerry, you said, well, I'll do it. So why didn't I know you guys years ago? (laughs) Why didn't you? It's it's a shame. There's a nice connection, because a year ago, Shane, we did Wrecking Ball by Emmylou Harris. I think that was the first show that we did together. And that was an album about a second creative life for a beloved artist, as is Broken English. So we'll get into a lot more of that. So I do want to ask you, what was your entry point for Marion's music? Was it through Broken English or were you a fan of her so-called songbird phase? You know, it would would have been Broken English. I was very aware of her because I'd spent my first formative years in England. She was always on TV and either singing or being in the news for something, possibly being Mick Jagger's partner, Hmm. getting into trouble. So I was aware of her. And then after I moved to Australia, she was very much in the news because she kind of OD'd here in Australia while he was making Ned Kelly. Hmm. So she was in all the papers, but not so much for music. She wasn't really, I, I think she just dropped off the radar after about 67, I think. I think she did have a bit of a comeback in the 70s but her 70s were mainly as far as i know were fairly lost there's a yeah. large backstory behind that but we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah yeah but yes i was aware of her and then, but then musically not really until broken english how about you kerry well i think the first song of hers i ever heard was as tears go by it is the Smiling faces I can see 
from the 60s when she had this pretty young voice. And then when Broken English came out, I thought this can't be the same person. There's no way. But of course it was. So to be honest with you, I'd heard a few songs from back in the 60s and then honestly, really nothing until Broken English. And the only thing I knew about her was that she was Mick Jagger's girlfriend for years. And then once Broken English came out, did a little research because I was like, what happened to her? Because that voice is a little different from the original. And then I found out that she had had some tough times. But yeah, so it is really just like (laughs) the extremes of her musically. That's what I've heard of. I think she'd often gone and said, I was never the artist who people thought I was. from this point onwards was where she said, right, I'm going to be a whole lot more honest about my work. She had nothing to lose by this. Mm. I remember I first heard her when I was 15 years old. The Ballad of Lucy Jordan was being played on Top 40 radio. And really, at the time, I was sort of a meat and potatoes, drums, bass, guitar sort of guy. So musically, this album or that song, The Ballad of Lucy Jordan, was not going to do anything for me. Really, in hindsight, I was thinking, what is a 15-year-old boy going to do with a song about a woman who's a middle-class housewife who can't cope with her day and is completely bored so that was never going to be a song that I was going to identify with but just (laughs) as an aside though I was speaking with my 18 year old daughter who's now become a huge fan of this album and also she's become a fan of Nina Hagen who who I think the Nina Hagen band um, came out at about the same time so she's Mm. really finding these great singers as uh, I don't know role models or just exciting singers to listen to but she said that that was a song that touched her it was a great story and we were talking offline before about great story songs about whether something is autobiographical or not or whether it's just great storytelling in song and she said no I'm I'm not identifying with the plight of Lucy Jordan. I'm just thinking that it's tragic storytelling. So I think, well, you know, she's more mature than I was back at the time, maybe more mature than I still am. But where I first heard her, where my ears pricked up and I thought, oh, I like this. And this is still a bit synthy, but it was a great song. Do you remember a guy called Rupert Hine put out an album in 1981 called Immunity? And there was a song, Misplaced Love. I wonder if some jokers Now. 
it was synthy. The third verse of the song, it was sung by Marianne and it sounded like something out of a neo-noir film. As she sings, I noticed that you touched my soul in time and lied to stop my leaving for a place where no one hears. And oh, that just really knocked me out of the park. I loved that song and I thought, okay, there's really something to it. I loved her voice. It just sounded so world-weary and it touched me. Oh, oh yeah. Lucy Jordan. <laughs> Hadn't. Have either of you heard the live album Blazing Away? Yeah, I've got it. It's excellent. No. No, sorry. That's, Carrie, get onto that. Someone loaned me the CD of that and she's playing with this full-on band and her keyboard players are Dr. John and Garth Hudson in this (laughs) band. I mean, that is absolutely insane. And because she was playing with a real band and played in a cathedral on this Mm. recording. I think it was sort of, I watched the VHS tape that sort of got released along with it at the time. She's this picture of dignity and then she launches into why'd you do it at some stage. (laughs) But musically, I thought, oh, now I get it. Now I get these songs. And it was like a cross section of material, mainly from Broken English on, although they do a version as Tears Go By, they had to. But this was, um, that was the point where I thought, okay, I've fallen in love with you. That's it. And then I went back (laughs) and bought uh, Strange Weather, the album that she put out a few years after Broken English. It had Bill Frisell on guitar and that was definitely an attraction for me. And you know that it's beginning And you know that is the end When once again we're strangers And the fog comes rolling in And all over the world Strangers talk only about the weather. She'd sort of gone to different places again from what Broken English was about and she had another album 20th Century Blues which I really liked which mm. was very cabaret her and a piano and this uh, really very 1930s Berlin cabaret sounding version of the moon over Alabama Show me the way to the next whiskey bar Oh don't ask why Oh don't ask why Oh, we must find the next whiskey bar For if we don't find the next whiskey bar I tell you we must die I tell you we must die I tell Very you discordant that was where I sort of thought, wow, you know, this is this is magnificent. Then I went back to broken English and, and I thought, right, I get this now. I get this. Okay. Yeah. I remember, I, th- I think I probably had the same reaction to Lucy Jordan to you. I mean, when it starts, it, when I first heard it, I, th- I think I heard it, it was a theme song to a movie uh, called Montenegro with Susan Anspach. It was like the introductory music. The movie was about a bored housewife who goes wild. And I remember hearing it. And I thought it starts like a, it almost sounds like one of the Who's um, early 70s synth things. Right. So it's got one of those Pete Townsend sequencer, thing, old-fashioned sequencer. Yeah. But it, it, it never leaves that. It doesn't, a big your power chords don't come in like the Who. It just stays on that. 
And uh, I thought, well, that's interesting. I don't, I, you know, I, it wasn't what I was into at the time. It's funny how getting that album, which I did when I heard a few other tracks off it, how modern it sounded then and how organic it sounds now, you know, compared with what we've heard since then. It sounds very bluesy to me anyway, sounds very organic. But look, I, th- I think a few years ago they went and released one of those deluxe edition CDs yeah. and they did that one of Broken English. Yeah. Like I didn't get that edition of it because you know, I thought, yeah. well, you know, how many times can you double up? But some of those songs from the deluxe edition are on YouTube. So I went yeah. and listened to the original mixes of Lucy Jordan and Broken English. And we'll get more into this later on. Yeah. But they sound like the real band. So none of that synthy stuff is actually yeah. there. It sounds like an ordinary band. And we'll get into the reasons why that happened later on. But I think yeah. doing what she did with the synths. Listening to it now as someone who really, really loves the album, I think it was definitely for the best that she did what she did. But we'll, we'll come to that later on. While the album and its cathartic nature, and it's an angry album in a lot of mm. ways, it, while the album can be and should be listened to in its own right, I think that we need to sort of like go through a little bit of the history and what led to it. Because I think a lot of albums need to be, you need the history. You need to say, right, it's important because this happened. And obviously any artistic statement needs to stand in its own right. And the album certainly does. But it's a fascinating story. So I did some reading up on this. And she, I think, was at the age of 17. She'd already become something of a socialite and was, I'm not sure, maybe she was modelling as well. She ended up at a party where Andrew Lug Oldham, the Rolling Stones manager, was there. And he saw her, hadn't heard her sung a word, but he knew he had to sign her because she had the look. Because I think in London at the time, Carnaby Street and the fashions, people were signed because of how they looked. Either you're aware what his first thoughts were about her. I would imagine it's like the old Elvis thing. If, if she can sing as well as she looks, I'm going to make a million dollars or something. Well, that might have been a good summary. But basically, he's said, I think in his biography, and even Marion Faithful has said this in interviews, that Andrew Lou Goldham's first thoughts about her, she's my angel with big tits. I need to <laughs> sign her. So that's exactly what she did. And I just can't imagine that the Marion Faithful that we know and love from 1979 on, Onwards, would have accepted that. I, I just sort of thought no. if someone had come to her later on in life and said, you're my angel with big tits, I need to sign you, she would have said, you can go fuck off. Yeah. Well, you know, she was a child, basically. I suppose she didn't mm-hmm. feel... I mean, she was a, almost an aristocrat, but still, you know, not probably not forthcoming or probably used to being treated that way by men at that in that era, I suppose. Mm-hmm. It right. Was, it took real life and a pretty hard life over the next few years for her to uh, yeah. finally build up that resilience that... I've got nothing to lose, so I'm just going to do what I want. But but yeah, it just seems so strange. And what does he do? He gets Mick and Keith to write a song for her, and it's as tears go by. She's recorded it another couple of times over the years, mm. but it never made sense that the Stones would sing this song at their age and that Marianne would sing this song at her age. It's not the song that a 17-year-old sings with such weariness about life. I sit and watch the children play. But once again, you know, we, we were speaking offline before about how people like Paul Kelly and Randy Newman can mm. write songs from the perspective of, of others. I guess that's what she was doing. But I like the fact how... Now 
nowadays it's a song that she's grown into i think maybe even like on her last studio album she might have re-recorded a version of oh, this wow. tears go by so you know at the age of 75 or however old she is at the moment it seems like a more appropriate song for her smiling faces i can see but not for me 17 when she's new and fresh on deck at the first single that she puts out it's it does seem unusual it was the era of storytelling anyway so i mean i don't recall thinking that about it i mean i guess from it sounds like there was from the perspective of an old person but i don't think she could be a, a young person watching children play too i suppose when she sings doing things i used to do they yeah. think are new it really does sound like the sort of thing that yeah well, you need yeah, to have dis- yeah. you need to have lived life it's not like wow i'm 17 <laughs> years old and they yeah. think they're playing on the monkey bars is really really cool you know yeah yeah. (laughs) i mean it always seemed to me that it was just a song that someone wrote for her she recorded it and then she was on hullabaloo or whatever it's funny because i know it was a big hit and she does have a a very pretty voice but it's the arrangement of it like i like the stones arrangement of it much better than hers because she just kind of goes through it there's something about it that's very mechanical to me so you're right i don't think that she does have a lot of feeling in it but she was pretty enough and her voice was pretty enough that it didn't matter. Well, she got like, um, I think about five albums worth of material on the Decca label following that single. So for a few years, that's what she did. And she was reasonably yeah. successful. She made films. In fact, last month on C here, we were talking about, I think the first French film made in color for French television called Anna. It was songs written by Serge Gainsbourg. And she appears in that, like as, well, I think her character's called Pretty Woman at the Ball and she sings this one song to the main character in the film whose name is Serge and is presumably like a a surrogate for Serge Gainsbourg where she sings to this bachelor if I met you tomorrow or if I'd known you yesterday I'd probably say yeah you're cute but not today not interested in you I wondered whether this is just a one-off song but apparently she recorded a lot in French Wow! if you're a fan out there who likes that folksy period then my apologies but the songs that I've heard not heard like a ton but the ones that I've heard almost seem a little bit insignificant she was never going to be remembered for her music if that would have been her entire legacy but i believe she was successful with it at the time they were utilizing a lot of people from the folk scene to get material and to play on those things so sound wise they sound pretty good there were certainly better female folk singers in britain at the time who Mm -hmm. could have handled that material a lot better but probably didn't look like marianne faithful (laughs) right people like sandy denny had richard thompson writing for her and jackie mcshee had John Renborn and Bert Yanch yeah. arranging you know, old English folk songs or writing yeah. folk songs for her or you know, Maddie Pryor doing what she was doing. So these were like the ladies who were steeped in old folk music. She yeah. Was, she was just someone who had accidentally fallen into it. But look, her voice is lovely enough, but... Yeah, it's sweet. It wasn't like, what can we do artistically with her? It's, well, uh, what can we do to make some money off her? Mm. And, um, yeah, yeah, that's it. They weren't going to make a blues album, which probably would have been the logical thing to do if she was tied in with the Stones. But she probably obviously just at that stage didn't have the voice for it to, to no, do that. Yeah. No, not really, yeah. She grew into her voice over the years. Yeah. So, so as you've already gone and mentioned, she hung out a lot with the Stones and there was the infamous London police drug bust. She was 
big on the cocaine and the heroin over the years and there's a lot of stuff listen to other podcasts read books there's a lot of story that's going we're not going to necessarily going to go into that but what is important is she'd been in hospital had gone into a coma after taking a whole lot of pills and she came out of it but as a result of laryngitis and too much heroin too much cocaine her voice had dropped it was not the pretty girl voice that we'd known from those decker years she came out after her relationship with mick completely destitute and poor and lived mm. on the streets for quite a few years or she was living in a squat fairly mid-70s she'd Married this fellow Ben Brearley, who uh, a, a punk singer, and the both of them had lived in a squat in Soho. The weird thing is that there'd been a producer called Mike Linda who yeah. had recorded an album with her, which didn't get released until the mid 80s, like once the Island Records phase had become a thing. We can capitalize on them. This is that uh, Mike Leander? Uh, yes, Mike Leander. Oh, right. yeah, he was he was the Gary Glitter guy, wasn't he? He, he produced oh, was he Bell oh. Records. Yeah, he produced all of those Gary Glitter and wrote, I think, a lot of those Gary... Well, it's not a great claim to fame. No. But, uh, <laughs> he also yeah. did the string arrangement for uh, She's Leaving Home on Sgt. Pepper because Paul McCartney <gasps> was in a hurry <laughs> to get it done and he, he couldn't wait for George Martin to finish whatever he was doing. And George got a bit crabby about it. It's a lovely right. string arrangement, though. It is, it is beautiful. It is, yeah. yeah, just a little aside there. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, that's why I invite you on this show, Shane. You're, you're <laughs> yeah, really. Nerd. You come up with the good stuff. <laughs> so in 71... She recorded this album with Mike Leander. He searched her out on the streets. Mm. And he wanted to get her off the streets. So he said, right, well, we're going to record this album and we're going to get you back in the public eye. The album was called Masks. The record company didn't want to release it. It didn't get released until the mid-80s, as I said. Wow. It got called Rich Kid Blues. And you listen to it, and on the one hand, it does sound sort of like the folky stuff that she was used to. But there's something really bleak about it. It's this sparse oh, yeah. arrangement. Title song written by Tara Reid, who we recently spoke about on Love That Album. It's All Over Now by Bob Dylan, who I know yeah. they loved each other very much. Beware of Darkness by George Harrison. Watch out now, take care, beware of falling swingers. Dropping all around you The pain that often mingles In your fingertips And her voice is so suited for that song, it's great. Yeah. Uh, so is the voice by this stage, is it getting closer to the broken English voice? Oh, it's in the broken English voice, definitely. Right. That had long since gone, I think a couple of years earlier on, when she'd released a single... I think it was 1969, she released a single that on the B-side was Sister Morphine. Yeah. And by that stage, she was already in the voice that we came to know and love. Right. took years before those two very generous guys Keith and and Mick deigned to give her songwriting credits or co-songwriting credits because they're, yeah. they're not yeah. known for sharing that but the, no. record, the record company basically said no you can't release that and I think it was out for about a week before her version got scrapped so I imagine that 45 is quite a uh, pricey little item 
I haven't gone and done the research, but <laughs> they're great sure. lyrics in that song. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, and and also, but written from the perspective of someone who knew that would be autobiographical. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 1976, she released one more album before the big breakthrough. I think she finally decided to write. I think I've had my time on the streets. That's it. I'm going to come back and do something. And she recorded an album called Faithless, which I think is also. I'm not sure if it changed its name later on, but this album, Faithless, has a song that I posed as a trivia question in the Mm -hmm. Love That Album group. And the question was, what do Colin Hewitt and Marianne Faithful have in common? And you said, I know, I know. (laughs) Well, it's Dreaming My Dreams of You, isn't it? Correct. It's almost like one of those cabaret Weimar Republic kind of songs, isn't it? Sounds like it's got that. I, I've heard both versions. Marianne must have got it out first. I, I oh, yeah. It was, I think, about four or five years before. I, yeah, I, right. 1980, yeah. 1981, seeing her on, like, number one on Countdown. Can you imagine that that song went <laughs> to number one? On, Colleen Hewitt hadn't had a hit since day by day in the early yeah that's right so i should explain kerry colin hewitt in the early 70s was like i think our queen of pop we had this guy johnny farnham who also had a mid-80s career revival and colin hewitt and they became the king and queen of pop she had this incredibly strong voice like musically not anything that i'm particularly into and i don't imagine that you have much colin hewitt in your collection either shane but not um, not a lot (laughs) but she but this one song dreaming my dreams came out of the blue and i think 1981 or 1982 and it was a number one hit really unexpected but i only discovered like doing the research for this show that dreaming my dreams was first done by marianne faithful and in her hands it's more this i don't know if you'd call it dirgy but this really tear in your beer country song Mm. as, as if it was sung by marlena dietrich yeah, that's what I would always thought it was. Even when Colleen did it, it sounds like something from Blue Angel or something, you know, like Lily Marlene kind of song. Okay. I, I don't really feel that same way about Colleen Hewitt because <laughs> she's still in control of her upper register and it's done at least two or three keys above yeah, sure. where, where yeah. she does it. it. It's got the same slow tempo, but yeah. it's it's more like, I'm going to cry. Oh, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll get over you. <laughs> I think it's just the melody of the song, the way it's constructed. It's just got that vibe to it. Germanic. Well, it's, a, <laughs> it's a Waylon Jennings tune, isn't it? Some day I'll get over you I'll live to see it I did not know. I don't know. Should I look this up? <laughs> we should know this, Morris. Oh, God. I, <laughs> I mean, that would explain the tear in my beer. Yeah, uh... absolutely. <laughs> Emmy Lou Harris did it as well. Not written by, but was recorded by Waylon Jennings. So Waylon, oh, okay. Jennings, re- Waylon okay. Jennings recorded it before Mary. You are completely... Oh, Kerry, you're the big music nerd of this show. Shane and I... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> bowing at your feet. I, I think this is three years before the release of Broken English. Now, can you imagine you're at a point in your career? Well, that album, Faithless or Dreaming My Dreams, whichever way you look at it, whatever it was called, the whole album was a country music album. I've listened to it and it's okay. But it still sounds like a singer who is trying to present this nice, inverted commas, side of herself. Or, I'm so sad. This is not the sound of a woman who's completely sure of herself, is pissed off at the world, is grabbing the world by the collar and saying, you're going to pay attention to me. And there's a film clip, I think, of her performing it, Dreaming My Dreams, on some television show. It might have been in Ireland, because apparently that album was a number one hit in Ireland. She says, uh, because there's... No one like the Irish who like a really sad song or really melancholy song like they do, but it <laughs> didn't do anything anywhere else. I can only imagine that she thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. I'm going to do something. And Chris Blackwell of Ireland Records goes and knocks down her door and says, right, I want to do something with you and puts her in contact with Mark Mundy, who I believe at the time was like a new producer. And he said, I've got some suggestions. And she thought, well, I guess, what do I have to lose? Therein we lead to the album under question, Broken English. What do you reckon? Do we go for a break and then come and talk about the album? Sure. Yeah. Do you mind? Because um, I think my dog has to go outside. Sounds like a good plan. All right. We'll be back in a moment. Kerry's dog needs to go take a wee and we need to go have a glass of water. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to episode 128 of Love That Album. every month as they discuss music-related movies. iTunes, Facebook or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. Far out. Out, out, out. And we're back from break. Morris speaking here. Shane over there, Kerry also somewhere a lot more over there, and we're finally going to get round to talking about Broken English as an album, released in 1979 on the Island record label. Chris Blackwell believed in Marianne Faithful, so brought her onto the label. He'd heard some demos for Broken English and Why'd You Do It, and decided, right, I need her on the label. And these songs, you understand why she went for them, why she wrote in Broken English's case, she went and wrote that. She wrote a couple of things on this, but she's really more known as rock music's supreme interpreter, certainly from mm. that point onwards. 
a lot of this album, even a couple of songs like Lucy Jordan, that you don't necessarily see on the surface as being angry. I certainly do. But we'll get into that as we go along the way. I'm going to put the question to both of you. Can What albums that you can think of, and I know that there are probably a bunch out of there, but what albums that may come to your mind seem like cathartic experiences, albums that the artist in mind just wrote to get a whole lot of shit off their chest? Bitter Little Pill. There was a slap in the face How quickly I was replaced And I am thinking of me When you fuck her Not my favorite, but it sort of reminds the anger mm. because it, like why'd you do it on the Marian on the faithful album reminded me a little bit of uh, you ought to know mm-hmm. just the attitude of it but that did seem like something that was getting something off her chest the, the first one i can think of is time out of mind bob dylan's album where he was kind of facing mortality every day your memory goes dimmer it doesn't haunt me like it did before I've been walking through the middle of nowhere Trying to get to heaven before they close the door yeah, you can really tell that that's what's happening, and and he, he never really did that again. Uh, I think once he realised he wasn't going to die, I think he went back to being a bit more life affirming. I think the, the one after that was a bit more jolly, and I think the other one is "All Things Must Pass," the George Harrison album. It's like this spewing out of songs that he just couldn't get out in the Beatles. Mm. And and there are a few songs on it like Wawa that really just tell his story about being in the Beatles. It's, it's pretty cathartic in a different way in that mm. he finally could get these all these songs out. And obviously they'd be building up because most of the songs on that album are brilliant. And the Beatles were kind of passing them by from, from Maxwell Silver Hammer and right. <laughs> some awful things you know, over yeah, the yeah. years. So yeah, that's about two I can think of that are a bit like that. And I think this one's a bit the same. It's a build-up of material, I think, that's so that's what it feels like to me. It's like the floodgates have opened. Mm. Well, I mean, look, there are some songs on this album which she co-wrote and some that she yeah. interprets, but everything that she sings, she absolutely owns. The two albums that come to my mind as being really hugely cathartic, in one case, it's a debut album. The second album is sort of a debut. But the first album, maybe just a couple of years, I think it would have been before Alanis Morissette, was the first real album for Tori Amos, Little Earthquakes. Mm. That was an album which, I mean, I didn't really follow her career so much after that, just a little bit here and there. But Little Earthquakes was an album where she had to get a lot off her chest, a lot of tragic songs on that album. And she was angry and frightened and and a lot goes on as she has a go at religion, an incredible record, really cathartic. But the other one, it's interesting that you mentioned All Things Must Pass, Shane, because where I went was from the same period was the Plastic Ono Band album. Oh, of course, yeah. I don't expect you to understand after you've caused so much pain. 
not counting the wedding album or Two Virgins or Life with the Lions <laughs> or even Plastic Ono Band Live in Toronto, mm. this was really the first Lennon album, certainly after the Beatles. And you sort of imagine the man who had sung on one of the most beloved albums of all time just celebrate its 50th anniversary with Andy yeah. Road and having to be on the same album as songs like Maxwell's Silver Hammer, but also even <laughs> beautiful things like you know, Because yeah. and the like, and yet he's come to this very raw, very flatly produced album like the Plastic Ono Band, which sounds like it could have been put together, certainly from a production perspective, as mm. a modern independent album or maybe something from the 90s. There's no sheen. It could have been recorded in his back shed, just recorded <laughs> with a Fostex 40 yeah. cassette recorder. Uh, a little bit of reverb on a couple of songs, but that is it. But the, the point is, you know, he has the Arthur Yano primal yeah. scream therapy. There's a little bit more production technique that goes on in broken English, but they're both angry albums. Even though I sort of consider them as good companion pieces, play one after the other. The thing about the Plastic Ono Band album is... Even that album has a little bit of hope. He sings Hold on Yoko and he sings Love. And even when he sings God, where he's denouncing everything that's gone on in his life, he still sings at the end, I just believe in Yoko and I believe in me. And that's reality. Yeah. So there's there's some level of hope on that album, apart from Witch's song on Broken English. This is just from start to finish. This is an angry album. And you can even make a case for Witch's song being a stand up to the authority sort of album but yeah yeah we'll it's not that. a jolly song no well but, <laughs> but just imagine like you know was it two three years before she was doing dreaming my dreams this is yeah such a huge contrast you can only just imagine that when mark mundy said i want to do something different with you Mm. That she thought, well, what have I got to lose? Yeah, that's right. She probably didn't think she was going to live much longer. You know, she could have had that very fatalistic thing of just doing it right one time. She's, she's obviously a born survivor. Yeah, well, imagine, I mean, how many pills was it that she took when she came to Australia and went to that coma? Like, it was about 100 pills or something. That, that yeah. alone, and living on the streets, it's amazing that she made it. I mentioned Plastic Ono Band album. And the other direct connection, obviously, to this album is her cover of Working Class Hero. Just as a little aside, I don't know if you heard this, Shane, but someone who we both follow on Facebook, Mr. Gil Matthews. Oh, yeah. And he released on his marvellous Aztec Records label about a year ago. It was like two albums on the one CD. One was Summer Jam, which was you know, a yeah. live thing from the early 70s, long lost album. But there was also an album from the 90s that Lobby Lloyd had recorded but never released and included a 15-minute version of of working class hero. Oh wow. So I take you haven't heard it. No. 15 minutes? 15 minutes. I think he might even oh. add like an extra verse of lyrics. Lobby Lloyd was probably known for the longest time as the loudest guitarist in Australia. He was part of uh, Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs in the early 70s before forming his own band, The Coloured Balls. Hard rock, pub rock in Australia. If you don't say Lobby Lloyd started it, then you certainly mm. say he was very instrumental in it becoming the thing that it did in the early 70s. So he does on, I think, his final studio album, which didn't get released, as I said, till about a year ago or so. Yeah. And he had this version. And i got to say, it's not my thing. It was, <laughs> I liked it at first for the novelty, but it's just full on noise and lobby. He's not singing it great. But <laughs> yeah, I think his early work, a lobby certainly turned the creation of volume into an art. You know, yes. It, it, um, <laughs> 
but yeah, I didn't I didn't keep up with him. My last time I saw him play, he was playing bass for Rose Tattoo. So yeah, that's an interesting song, isn't it? Working class hero. I remember when this album came out. I remember the NME giving her a real hard time about recording that. And I also remember John Lennon being given a bit of a hard time about writing it because neither of them are what you'd call working class, you know, so, but I think the song's misunderstood in that way. Mm-hmm. I think he writes a working class hero is something to be, you know, so not something I am. The stuff he's writing about in the song is, a, is more about middle class life. That's what I think. Anyway, that's my interpretation. Mm-hmm. The end of the song, he does something that Marianne definitely does not. And I think it's to Marianne's credit where he sings at the end of the song. If you want to be a hero, well, just follow me. When Marianne, she dismisses that line out of the song because she probably thinks, right, what you said, a working class hero is something to aspire to. But she never for one moment makes out that she is that hero. And if you take that line out of it, the rest of it is just, it's a treatise on societal hypocrisy. They hate you if you're clever and they despise a fool until you're so fucking crazy you can't follow their rules. I mean, there's nothing in there that you can be taken to task for. He's just citing some home truths. Yeah. And I think even that last line, we all know what about Lennon's kind of modern humour. I'd like to give him the benefit of the doubt and saying he wasn't being messianic when he wrote that. I think I think he might have just be, you know, taking the part of a character again, saying it's some kind of rabble rouser. Kind of like the the character in in Tommy. Like all of a sudden he becomes a I don't know. Follow me. Like I'm I'm saying all these truths, all these truths and everything, and I've lured you in, and now mm. now follow me. But I do think he is joking you know or or being facetious there yeah yeah that's where i've always kind of felt it seems like a universal kind of a song where it doesn't necessarily hit any class because Mm. like some of the stuff he's saying is fairly universal about like you you don't have enough time to sort of feel your way around you have to be working or working towards something or you they treat you like crap for 20 years and then they want you to pick a career that whole thing and that's almost kind of universal so to me it's not even a he says working class hero but it's just a title four years before that lennon had gotten himself into trouble where his words were taken out of context being said, well, we're more popular than Jesus now. Right. And he wasn't saying it to imply, well, we deserve to be more popular than Jesus, but he was saying, well, organized religion has gone this way and it's just simply a fact more kids are listening to the Beatles than they are going to church. Um, It's pure fact, isn't it? But but of course, the American South took it as something different. But no one who read the original article in that London newspaper took it aside from what he originally meant it, it would seem. But you go and take one line and stick it in some teenage fan magazine in America. and Well, he wasn't very prescient, was he? Because he said, said something like, religion will go, I'm right and I'll be proved right. And mm. that's obviously not been the case in America. It's, it's kind of gone from strength to strength to where now it's a massive influence in government. And It's not just here. <laughs> no, no, yeah. that's true. Yeah. It's here as well. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so he's a bit wrong there, but he was wrong about a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> It is a good song, though. I, I like her version of the song very much. Oh, yeah. Which version did you hear first, Kerry? 
John Lennon's. Mm, right. John yeah, Lennon's. me too. Yeah. Honestly, it's different. It's different not only because Lennon's voice is actually softer and cleaner, and the way he does it is a little bit gentler. Hers is a lot more dire, and she's pissed. Yeah, yeah she's angry. Yeah. It's it's an yeah. angrier version of it, I think. I like her version very much. I think I prefer it. Mm. Yeah, as you say, it's not just her voice that sounds angry, although it, it really does. You know, Lennon is very reserved. It's him with a guitar in a room. It's almost like he's unsure of himself when he sings it. And I love that version, but it's just the nature of how he does it. It's really very plain, very, very sparse. Whereas mm-hmm. in the version that she does, it's very bass heavy, and Barry Reynolds has got these guitar stabs. Right. Built these up crashes, up. kind yes. of. Mm. Yeah. As you're born, they make you feel small by giving you no time instead of it all. And it's scary. It's the sort of thing which, if you were locked in a room with that playing over loudspeakers, <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be frightened. Yeah, they've, they've kind of hooked onto the character of the song, haven't they, and brought it out. Um, yeah. The brooding the brooding kind of nature of it. He's, I think Barry Reynolds is a bit, I don't know if we're going to talk about him, but he's a bit of the, the unsung hero, really, of this, because he kind of co-wrote a lot of these songs. He was her guitarist for that, apparently. Where she did a tour of Ireland, and she might have hired him there because he's Irish, to do the Dreaming My Dreams stuff in Ireland, and that's basically the band she uses on that album and then gets tarted up by I think some uh, well I think Steve Winwood plays on it yes that's true he does yes. yeah a lot of this a lot of the keyboards and synths and stuff I've got a solo album of his that came out around this time and he does a lot of these songs in his own way and it's really good so who's that Barry Reynolds he ended up being like the house guitarist at Compass Point he played on a lot of Grace Jones's stuff and he was one of Sly and Robbie's go-to guitarists He's a very tasty player, a bit unsung, really. It doesn't surprise me when you mentioned that he worked with Sly and Robbie. I didn't know that. We'll come to the reason why he seems like a natural choice later on in the show. Yeah, yeah, sure. So the nature of this song, Working Class Hero, is very much a finger-pointing song. And really, as I think we're all agreed here, you know, she owns this song. It's yeah. a musical arrangement. Her anger. We were speaking off Mike before about Springsteen is the working class hero, but he's never worked a day in his life, uh, yeah. which, which is something that he now says in his live shows to his advantage. But yeah. I don't think a lot of people are sort of hanging shit on him for saying that because he's telling stories that people want to hear. And yeah. he may not have the empathy, but he has a sympathy and he's a good listener and a good learner and a good storyteller. Yeah, sure. He writes songs that are honest and true. But yeah. And he owns it. You know, yeah. he says... He, he he doesn't make any bones about being a poor guy or a guy who's just barely making it. <laughs> but John Lennon was notorious for saying, especially around this time, that it was all about him, that kind of thing. And he wasn't not particularly a storyteller. I think he had been in the past a little bit. Most of his famous songs are really, really self-referential. And yeah, in right, a way the storyteller that... was Paul. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Not the walrus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the storyteller was Paul. <laughs> <laughs> That's another clue for you, all. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Lennon would ever have written She's Leaving Home or something like that or Lovely Read to Me to Maid. Lennon was writing, I'd rather see you dead, little girl, than be with another man. Of course, we're talking about the same man who then went to write Oh My Love and yeah, Love yeah, is Real, you know, so... I don't know if either you remember there was a documentary. It may have been made for TV, but we had it in the cinema here. I don't know, maybe about 20 years ago, called Imagine. And yeah. there was that bit of Super 8 footage 
of some guy who was climbing over Lennon's oh, that, yeah. wall. And because he wanted to speak to Lennon about the meanings in his songs. And he said, he said, oh, they don't mean anything. I just, I just put words together. You know, Bob Dylan does it. I do it. <laughs> yeah. um, and there goes well, the worst John Lennon impression ever on a podcast. The poor guy, <laughs> the songs he brings up for, for Lennon to talk about are all Paul songs. <laughs> he says, what do you mean when you wrote Carry That Weight? And, well, Paul wrote that, but that's his reality. <laughs> You know, and then he does another one and he says, no, I didn't write that either. Octopus's Garden was written by Ringo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a funny scene because he's quite compassionate with that guy. Cynically, you could think it's because the cameras are rolling that he's being nice to the guy. Right. He brings him in for a meal and poor, it's just like a just completely blitzed out hippie that's seeing meaning. Well, a lot of people did in those days. Yeah, there's all that kind of hidden meanings of Paul being dead and all that stuff that was right. these crazy people were coming up with. Shame he didn't show the same sort of compassion with the Smothers Brothers a few years later. <laughs> oh, oh no. my gosh. It's a terrible story. It is a terrible story. Yeah. Oh, and he was, was Harry Nilsson too. I just feel like during that, was it Pussycats? Yes. Album where he ruined his voice by having a screaming contest with John or something. Yeah, that's right. Lennon was teaching him how to scream. He said, tell me, how do you do that? Like what you did on the Plastic Ono band album. And he teaches him and boom, there's his voice gone. But I have to say that Pussycats is one of my very favorite Nelson albums. I love it because it sounds like a man falling apart. Uh, Many rivers to cross. That's, that's got to be one of the greatest Nelson things I've ever heard. And I'm, I'm sure that I'll be taken a task by a lot of other Nelson fans saying, oh, you're just bullshitting. And I'm not, I'm not saying I don't love Nelson Schmelson. I love it. But just to see that this guy with his pure voice went and did that. When you think back as well to someone like Dennis Wilson, who yeah, sang gorgeous yeah. harmony for the Beach Boys, and then you hear his magnificent album, Pacific Ocean Blue, and he sounds like the voice of a man who's smoked too much, drunk too much. It's not the voice of a angelic Beach Boy. No, he's uh, shot to pieces. But that can be good too. I mean, it can be an affecting kind of... It's like this album, it kind of brings us right back to her because her voice is shot, but it's so yeah. perfect. She can't get from one note to, to the other. You'll If you listen to vocals closely, whenever, whenever she tries to gliss up to a note, the voice cracks, so she goes, ah, ah, like that. Yes, exactly. What yes. are you fighting right. for? Mm. And it's, it's, she's trying to kind of gliss up, but she can't do it. So right. it, yeah. it, it becomes part of a style, which is affecting, but you can hear what she's trying to do and not doing, which is right. the accident is, is rock and roll, isn't it? It's, it's what it's built on. I was listening again to the album today as I was out doing errands. You know, I just had the CD in my car and I was struck by that same thing. And I kept mm. thinking, I wonder how many takes it took to get to record these things, because when your voice is that shot, you don't have any control. You don't know what's going to happen. When this album came out, she went on Saturday Night Live and could barely get anything out. And it was disastrous. She did Broken English and she probably did The Ballad of Lucy Jordan also. I know she did Broken English, definitely. Yeah. And she just couldn't even hit any of the notes. And people kind of went, uh, what's the story? <laughs> Years ago, I used to sing professionally and you can't, if your voice is that shot, it's just hard. I mean, you can hear yeah. the fact that she has a little nasal quality to her voice, which is the only thing that's allowing her to get a sound out yeah it's not coming from her chest right because yeah. if she didn't have that nasal quality to it she wouldn't get what she's even getting 
But the fact is that even though it's an album and you're listening and not seeing, she is acting the songs yeah, to some yeah. extent. Because something that Maurice said earlier about as time goes by, being a song for an older person who's experienced some of life. Well, obviously, by the time Broken English came out, she'd experienced the hell out of life. So these songs had deeper meaning and so she's able to sort of act her way through them so i think that's what gets her through these but i imagine she must have had a lot of takes on these though too well i'd say so i mean it's a very um, narrow voice as far as bandwidth goes isn't it it's very right. much in those mid-range it's she doesn't get down low or, or up high but what's the producer's name again i can't can't remember he did a great job with her he's, 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 the voice sits so beautifully all the way through this in the mix yeah I think it works well, yeah, it was, for sure. It, it, I believe it was his idea to come up with the synth stuff, the electronic stuff, because as I mentioned yeah. at the start of the show, a couple of those early mixes, it just sounds like her and a band, and it's yeah. it's still different from what she'd done before, but it's just her and a band. This transformed the music from the realm of some pretty good songs played by a proficient band to yeah. something that was, oh, look, I can't even find the words for it. Just It became something that was going to last forever more. And even though it sounds, those synths sound of their time, but yeah. the music still resonates today. I still think, yeah, I can tell when that was recorded, but it still sounds perfectly great to listen to today. I'd much rather hear those songs done with the synth bleeps and bloops than just the band. Those original mixes, they are on YouTube if you want to okay. give those a listen. I'm not sure how easily the CD is available anymore. Well, it's a, it's a transitional album, isn't it, from kind of the pub rock punk thing into the new wave right it sits right in the middle of that because it's 1979 so it's more punk in spirit yeah it's musically not yeah i don't think she was like saying oh well uh, the sex pistols have done this thing i want to do that but maybe she was paying attention in that she was saying you don't need to have a classically trained voice to be successful and just sort of think about how many other singers had been out there before the punk movement it was just acknowledged you needed to be perfectly trained bob dylan accepted but you needed to be able to hit all those notes and then this is this exciting time whereas if you had some emotion you had some anger you had something to say and you did it in a distinctive way which she definitely did then you could put your voice out there and really she came to realize there's no point in doing the sorts of songs that i used to do and i I will Mm. sort of come back to saying that the 1971 album masks which didn't get its release or 85 that could have been a good album to release at this time because it was fairly dire sounding but because it's played with fairly conventional instrumentation it did get to see the light of day but definitely that broken english was the album for this time thereafter she could do whatever she wanted to do yeah and i've not heard every island records album that she did through i've seen i've heard like about another three or four albums post that and they're all fairly different there's i don't think she ever did anything quite like this one again but it mm-hmm. allowed people to say, oh, well, we're going to pay attention to you. So this was the album that came out at the right time for it. Yeah, sure. Now, we've really gone and spoken a fair bit about Working Class Hero, and that's an angry song and a finger-pointing song. The Ballad of Lucy Jordan is, on the surface, not an angry song, but no. it seems to me like there's some finger-pointing in there talking about middle-class expectations are that this woman is just going to stay at home and iron the shirts and rearrange 
exchange the flowers while her husband and her sons go off and do what they're going to do. maybe a little bit more subtle with its anger you can sort of say something sarcastic and come off oh okay i know what the point that is that she's making this is a song that was not written for her but once again i think that she owns had you either of you heard the dr hook version originally yeah yeah i have her husband he was off to work and the kids were off to school there were oh so many ways for her to spend a day. Now I haven't. I, I knew it was a Shel Silverstein song, um, right. who's mainly known for writing kind of off-colour songs for Dr. Hook, but yeah, so and I, I should check it out. I imagine it sounds like Dr. Hook. It sounds good. It's, it's certainly a song where, even in their version, you realise it's more like a tear-in-your-beer country sort of song rather yeah. than the tragedy yeah. that it actually is. But I don't know, Dennis LaCorea, his voice, I find it a little annoying here because it's, um, she could <laughs> paint the house for hours or rearrange <laughs> the flowers. Oh, that's that Sylvia's mother's voice, isn't it? Oh, I love that. That song. <laughs> I love that song. Oh, I'm sorry, Kerry. And he wrote that too. Shel- no, Sel- not, Silverstein yeah, yeah, wrote that yeah. too. As far as Doctor Who goes, not up there with Roland the Roadie and Gertrude the Groupie. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I can't. I can't handle Sylvia's balustrades. I, I mean, I can see what they're doing. It's, I just, I just, I just think, think it's a really interesting way of doing it. I like it. I think well, it's clever. It, it was the obvious way to do it at the time. It's a sad song, so it presented itself as a country song, and that's how they did it. And it's not a bad version, but all of a sudden when Marion is going to approach it, I mean, it seems more honest in her voice as a woman singing about what had gone. And she has some level, well, even though she, Marion Faithful, has no level of empathy. It's come back to the whole working class hero. Uh, Mm. Can you have empathy for your audience when you're obviously not working class or a hero? But as a woman who had never had the chance to live the life the way how she wanted it, she has Mm. some level of sympathy, even that Marianne did live her life at a certain point, maybe the way she wanted it, and that didn't work out either. She probably got to drive through Paris in a sports car with a warm wind in her hair, didn't she? <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, I'm sure she did. With Mick Jagger on her left. Arm. Although yeah, she probably right. doesn't remember it. No, that's right. No. Right. So tell me, you guys have heard, does Dennis LeCorrier, does he go rearrange the flowers like that? Oh, yes, did. yes, he does. <laughs> right. No, well, I like this version. I, 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 yeah, I, I like it. When this album came out, Broken English was the first one I remember hearing yeah. on the radio. I have this thing about when they repeat the title like 5,000 times in a song. Yeah. It just sort of annoys me. Like, I get it, okay? <laughs> Think of more lyrics. But <laughs> And then there's Broken English has this funny thing at the end where they go into this sort of extended dance mix, you know? Right, right, yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> It, it just keeps going and you're like, okay, I heard you. So I remember when that was my attitude when I first heard it was kind of, all right, it's a little repetitive. And then I heard the ballad of Lucy Jordan and I thought, oh, wow, 
that's a really neat song because it it told a story and yeah. it, it absolutely told a story and I totally got it and even though I was, it was 1979 my gosh I I certainly wasn't middle aged housewife age yet I was young you know but mm. I remember just really loving that song and thinking it was pretty cool. Yeah, I really love it now. I mean, I I was playing it on the way home from the gig last night. The synth sounds so warm to me. It's perfect kind of accompaniment to that tale. Could easily be done as a lacrimose kind of country weeper. Mm-hmm. Well, which um, it had been done. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 It's just a backdrop. I mean, it, it really is. Like the, the synth yeah. is just sort of like there. Yeah. To, and then she just sings around it. My big thing with that that always got me was how she would never drive through Paris but she says through Paris. Yeah, 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 she does. Yeah. So she does a French R. For some reason, I always thought that was kind of cool. Because <laughs> mm. <laughs> she doesn't do a French R the rest of the song or any other song. But she does no. it that one through. Yeah, I did notice that last night. I'd never noticed it before. What I like, you made the perfect comparison at the beginning of the show, Shane, where you said that a couple of these songs, and oh, well, this one in particular, sounds very much like what Pete Townsend was going through in something like Barbara O'Reilly or, yeah. or Take Away the Band but it won't get fooled again with that programmed synth you know that he used to program I think the Mehebaba's characteristics or something like that yeah yeah as I said in 1979 or 1980 there was no way I was going to listen to that sort of thing and appreciate it it was <laughs> stupid me I was just you know, meat and potatoes yeah what's yeah. the new Cold Chisel album yeah, yeah I'll get into that but yeah now I just sort of appreciate its texture and also just at a moment ago it sounds warm and it really yeah. does and it embraces you it's beautiful yeah and the other thing I really like is at the end of the song I think it's been open to interpretation is you know the end of the song lyrically is that she either commits suicide or she gets taken away the man takes away in the white car she's being taken to a mental hospital Mm. Mm -hmm. she's become so unstable but either way it's not the romantic she finally got to ride for real through Paris with a warm wind in her hair it's open up to that interpretation and I like the fact that because it doesn't have the happy ending that she really wanted. Musically, it's never resolved. We go the warm wind in her hair, which I think may be like a B seventh chord, and then it mm. goes wouldn't like an earlier run in the song, it goes to an E chord or something like that. Mm. But in this, she finally got to drive through Paris with the warm wind in her hair in her mind. Yeah. And it just yeah, ends it, up on that B seventh chord, which just sort of repeats itself over on yeah, yeah. the dominant yeah. chord. It, it's not it's not resolving back to its tonic of the of the song. Right. It's, a, it's a bit of an old trick. To do that it's like the expectations are just held but it's one of those songs where the musical arrangement is saying we're going to work with the lyric Mm. and i like it where lyric and music they might be fighting against each other but that's part of the overall plan but i think if it had gone back to whatever the tonic chord it would have been just a lazy thing and i have a feeling if i recall correctly that's what happens in the dr hook version but just that it finishes where it does the music is telling the story the same way that the lyric is and it's leaving you to guess well what actually happened here but one thing's mm-hmm. for sure it's not a happy ending um, no i don't think it is i yeah i mean it talks about going away on, on the cloud i think and so 
I think she's either got a wish, which I doubt, or she's been taken away, or she died. I mean, that's what I get from it, that she's yeah. free from whatever it is that she was stuck in up on the roof. That's how I've always thought it was. I always thought of it as like the ending of Streetcar Named Desire. It's this Blanche Dubois who's lost mm. the sense of reality and she's being taken away. That for some yeah. reason, the end of this reminds me of the end of that quite a bit. Millie Jackson, who went and yeah. did that song, St- If Loving You Is Wrong, I Don't Want to Be Right. Yeah. And she had these two albums caught up and still caught up. I'm embarrassed because I actually spoke about these albums on the show. But each side of each album was told, in one case, from the perspective of uh, the woman having an affair with a married man. And then on the other side with the wife of the woman who's discovered that her husband's been unfaithful to her. And on the sequel album, which I didn't really need to do, the final <laughs> song has the love of the woman who's, who the husband's been cheating on with actually being taken away to mm. an asylum and she's saying yeah, you can't take me away i still love you <laughs> you can't stand to do without me you'll be back i know you'll be back <laughs> put your arms right in here we're not gonna hurt you don't come near me nurse take your hands out of me nurse will you please help me let go me miss jackson please <laughs> None of the subtlety of this song. So. No, I've got that album, actually. Um, it's got some good songs on it, though. She, she does a great version of Love in Arms on there. The, yes, which I think John fantastic. cover years yeah. later. Yeah. There you go. I mean, it's, it's still, I mean, you know, even the worst Millie Jackson's pretty good. <laughs> it's certainly got some attitude. Oh, she did. Oh, she, she did. Yeah. I think yeah. They, they should have left it to uh, just the, the one. Yeah, album. the first one was a better album for sure. Much better. Yeah. One thing that just sort of occurred to me about where this album comes back, and we'd already gone and spoken that at this point, before this album comes out, she's probably not remembered that much for her music. She just was remembered for that woman in the fur rug yeah. who was arrested yeah. and was Mick Jagger's girlfriend. But it's interesting that this album comes out and people are talking about her and people are praising this album. And in 1979, the Rolling Stones, I mean, okay, they weren't like a, a dead force or anything like that, but they were referred to by the punks and by a lot of people who sort of said, the 60s was that decade. We're in this decade. And they were called mm. the Strolling Bones. They were no longer <laughs> the artistic triumph. And Marianne Faithful, who'd only been remembered for her connection to the Stones, had become an artistic triumph. I just sort of thought that, you know, she had a popular renaissance and the Stones artistically were on the way out. I mean, I think how many more original albums did they come with after 1979? Not that many in the last no. 30, 40 years. The odd good song, you know, they, mm, they but, still yeah. do. Yeah, but certainly no albums that are remembered in the way that you know, Exile on Main Street are. No. I just sort of found it interesting that someone who hadn't been remembered for anything more than a connection with the Stones was now succeeding on her own terms. And as I said, I've heard a few of those Island Records albums, which are all great, but all very different. And she finally yeah. had the nerve to say, right, I am going to do what I want to. And that's fantastic. The other really angry song on this album is the title track. You know, 
uh, Kerry, you've already sort of gone and alluded to it. And for years, I was sort of thinking, well, is this just a song about war specifically, but or the Cold War in itself? And then mm. you know, did a bit of a read up or an interview with her, and this was about the Bader Meinhof group mm. the red army mm. faction and i mean i remember hearing about them but didn't really know what they were about so were either you more steeped in your political history i mean i've read about it but either of you remember yeah. reading about the red army faction back in the day yeah i watched a doctor yeah. about them they certainly made the weathermen look tame mm. uh, yeah. what they got up yeah. to they were they were pretty militant yeah uh, i think I, I watched a docker and a kind of fictionalized version of what they got up to they were definitely for the overthrow of the West and capitalism and yeah so I don't I don't really know how the song alludes to it really because um, well I think Marion said that she was watching a news report at the time where Ulrich Meinhof and Andreas Bader had been arrested and they mm. were saying something in German which was being translated on the screen and someone behind them said no say it in broken English all right so that was just a lyric or, or it was mm. a line that stayed in her head and she went and wrote this song around it. The music might have come from Barry Reynolds. I think the yeah. music is actually sort of accredited to the whole group, but yeah. reality, it was yeah. his music to her lyrics. And I got a feeling that might have been one of those things where they wrote a lot of these songs together, I think, the ones that are credited to the band. And I think it was a way for the band to get paid. Yes. I think they might have, this, just knowing how bands work, it might have been her way of maybe getting to do the album on the cheap or not for not very much money we give them songwriting credits in case it mm-hmm. took off you know it does happen they might have worked where the arrangements out um you know like the bass and drums but you know bass and drums parts generally aren't considered to be composition i don't think unless they, they just worked everything up from the ground but i know they didn't do that because i know that she wrote these songs with barry reynolds and yet when you sort of think about the the bass part on the yeah it does sound very much like something that someone came up with in the studio yeah what do you think of this riff it is very very cold and mechanical but yeah. that suits the subject matter this is Marion's way of saying you have your problems against capitalists and people mm. who are screwing uh, the ordinary people good on you but really what are you fighting for it's not my security or what are you dying for it's not my reality from something i've read was that ulrich meinhoff when she originally met andreas bader and his partner whose name i've forgotten she had a daughter and they said no just turf your daughter off with someone else because we're in this all together and don't be some lovey-dovey hippie i know maybe they didn't use the word hippie because it was in yeah. the 60s but they said you know don't go believing in these peace type principles because that's yeah. not what we're about you know we we want to get society overthrown we got to kill uh we have to murder we have to kidnap and they even i think hijacked an airliner to get meinhoff and beta out of prison they said no we have our ideals and murder is on the table killing is yeah. on the table and marianne is pissed off she's saying well yeah. you know, don't you dare do things that you think you're doing in my name you've lost your father your husband your brother your children for mm. what it was post-war trauma, really, I think, with a lot of the German activists. I think they were just still traumatized from what had happened. From what so, their yeah. parents had Yeah, and it, well, you know, they would have been old enough, I think, to have experienced some of it. They weren't teenagers. They were in their, I think they were in their 20s. It was just weird that it was just happening. Well, it was happening in America a bit, too, but not till a bit later. It was just happening in Germany. They were right in the center of it all for this traumatized kind of split up country and a split up continent. 
And I wonder whether there was sort of any link between the Red Army faction and what was happening in like in Paris, I think, because in 1968, mm. 69, there were the big student riots that seemed like they would have had, at least ideologically, things that were very, yeah. very similar with what the RAF were doing. But it well, like 68, a, a yeah. European phenomenon as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was 68 for sure. You know, there was that was started happening all over the world. I mean, by then there were, there were riots in London as well or marches. And yeah, everybody thought that this was it, that revolution was coming. I mean, people really did. I mean, I was only young at the time, but they did think that well, it was. As uh, Greg McCainch wrote in Shirley Strawn saying, whatever happened to the revolution? Yeah. They all got stoned and drifted away. Or got married. Or, well, well <laughs> yes. Yeah. Got a job. And mm-hmm. it's hard to keep that kind of anger up when you're not 17 or 18 anymore. You know, it's, you just got, you got to deal with other things. There are still people out there fighting the good fight though. Yeah. Mm. It's good to see. But no one's kidnapping airlines. Mm. Yeah, no. that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> we don't need that. I just wanted to put out a real big shout out to uh, a couple of people. One's music journalist, Jeff Jenkins, who's a regular end of year contributor to uh, this podcast and he will be on next month's show. And also to the owner of the fantastic pop boomerang label, Scott Thurling. I put a bit of a call out to uh, a couple of people because in the early to mid 90s, Dave Steele, who was one of the songwriters of Weddings, Parties, Anything, he left and then he started up his own solo career, which is probably a good thing because he was the George Harrison of uh, Weddings, Parties, Anything. Anything. He had tons yeah. of terrific songs that Mick Thomas was not going to put out because it was basically his songwriting vehicle. After uh, he'd done his obligatory albums with Warner Brothers, he started doing things independently and he put together this great band called The Roadside Prophets. About the time that they put out an album called Cross My Palm, Dave also made a single, like a CD single, remember those? With his cover version of Broken English. Why? Very, very different to the Marion Faithful version, which sounds very cold and mechanical, but works so completely because of that. But in his Americana way, with a lot of slide guitar and acoustic guitar that gives it a lot of muscle, Mm. uh, it just works so completely. And I remember seeing the Roadside Prophets were a support band one year for Weddings, Parties, Anything. I remember hearing them do this amazing cover version of Broken English, and it's angry and it's powerful but it's americana it's not the synthy mehebaba pete dancing <laughs> i bought a cd at the show at the time but i have no idea where that went so a huge shout out to jeff and to scott scott basically was doing a long search and he said oh i've just sent a note to jeff jenkins and i thought oh yeah jeff has every australian record ever released you know over the last 20 30 years and just said yes indeed i do have it so as we're talking here you can hear the dave Steele version in the background i just sort of thought that that was worthy of the listener's attention hopefully dave will do a retrospective cd or maybe put everything out there on itunes or one of the other streaming services 
this is really a version that people need to hear. It's absolutely fantastic. It's like but, any great song, it, it can be interpreted any number of ways if it's mm. a great song. I guess there are a few songs that are just completely reliant on how they're arranged. Dave Steele is such a great songwriter <laughs> that he knows what would I do to this song to make it sound great? What would I do in my way? I mean, even like yeah. all the other songs off the Cross My Palm album. As I said, this song didn't come out on that full album, but it was with the same band and was within the same approximate period of time. And most of those songs are, I wouldn't say necessarily they're all happy or anything like that. They're not, but there's nothing as vicious. This is a song that shreds in his arrangement and it just, it works so well for that band. Yeah. Uh, so Kerry, put- when you said that the repetition of this got on your nerves a little bit, is it just that, that kind of constant repetition of the word broken English that, that got to you? Uh-huh. Yeah, it did. I mean, it, it happens to be a thing with me that whatever song, if it, if they repeat one phrase or one word over and over again i'm just like i got it <laughs> come on let's let's move on so you're not um, a fan of the police right yeah. <laughs> you know i like some police songs i do but yeah, yeah you're right the ending like when i used to sing in bands and we did covers of a lot of these bands and they would have these things at the end where they would repeat the yeah. thing 57 times i would be like i'm done <laughs> you know in rehearsal and i do it like four times and they'd say no no it repeats for like six more bars and i was like hey, yeah it doesn't it no we're not you, going you didn't like doing hey jude then oh <laughs> it, well it's not even honest, a word <laughs> i don't really like that song yeah well, I, well, I, I know get off my show I, I think it works in this song because the the repetition and the insistence is kind of part of its what she it's it's deliberate, right? You know? Because I love the song "Guilt," yeah, and that's got all that repetition. I feel guilt, though I know I've done no wrong. I feel guilt. I feel guilt. I feel guilt. Yeah. But for some reason, in guilt, it works for me. Yeah. It works. To me, that's more like a poem. That yeah. song comes off as like a Patti Smith song to me. Repeating it, it seems effective dramatically. But Broken English... Maybe because of the sort of robotic way that she's, she does it, you know, yeah. you're like, okay, <laughs> I don't hate the song, but I don't love it. No. It's not my favorite on the album. It not at all. <laughs> and no, it sounds weird because I, I, I like the album. I think it's a good album. You know, it's a solid album. That song is not my favorite on the album. Yeah, I think she was just quite chuffed with the phrase. I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> I think, oh, I'll, I'll just keep on saying it now. <laughs> she probably brought it up into polite conversation. Oh, excuse me, would you mind saying that in broken English? I didn't quite. <laughs> Imagine if she'd read something on the screen where someone had said, "Say it in pigeon English." Oh God. <laughs> that, that's a whole other song, isn't it? <laughs> I see what you say about guilt. I think where she repeats the word at the end of the song, I think it works in the context of the story. That's a song about her Catholic guilt. And right. um, she's trying to say, I haven't done anything wrong, but I feel guilt. I haven't done anything wrong. I don't know why I'm feeling guilty. And I think it's a case of her talking herself into it. And by the end of the song, she really does feel guilt. She can't talk herself into it anymore. So sometimes a repetition is serving the song. It's serving the story. And I think guilt is definitely one of those cases. For Broken English, it just works for me because it's, it's intense. It's that 
bass line, which is almost like a heartbeat. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the background, though, too. I do. I like the boom, 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 boom. It has a weird Giorgio Moroder kind of yeah. oh, um, yes. feel to it. And so it makes me think of 80s thrillers. The theme from Midnight Express, yeah. Chase. Yeah. yeah. Michael Jackson used it in Billie Jean, and it, that was much later. So she was quite prescient, really, with that kind of eight notes synth thing. I mean, her and whoever was – it wasn't a big thing in 1979, I don't think. I'm not sure that that was necessarily the crowd that she was going for, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was a 12-inch remix that was being played mm. in the clubs. You know, everyone's yeah. dancing well, that's to why the story I, of Badamainho. I know. Well, that's why I said the thing about the dance mix at the end uh, goes up an octave. And, yeah, and it, yeah. And it just keeps going and keeps going, and you think, okay, this is when we go out and dance, and the DJ just puts it back on again, and we just, <laughs> you know, so we stay out here longer, and then we come back and buy more drinks or whatever. I want to bring up one more song before we close this off it's the elephant in the room you can't talk about broken english and not talk about why'd you do it I've had no idea who Heathcote Williams, the writer of the lyrics of this song, was, but you know, he was uh, apparently a poet and an actor mm. and a political activist and even the occasional song lyricist. Marion had heard the lyric and said, right, I want to do this. And he said, no, I think I want Tina Turner to do this song. And <laughs> I don't know if she had enough anger in her or certainly she, her voice could do anger really, really well. So it would have been interesting to have heard her do this song, but I'm not sure if she knocked it back or she talked him into it. So no, let me do it. That's what I read was that Faithful said to him, are you kidding me? She's never going to say these lyrics. No, They're she never, wouldn't. They wouldn't, yeah. they wouldn't put it on an album or they wouldn't play it on the radio. So you, you'd never get Tina Turner to sing this. I'm not completely convinced that she couldn't have done it. I mean, she didn't get that opportunity. And certainly once Private Dancer comes out, and she's got songs like What's Love Got To Do With It. And that was certainly a few years down the track. Yeah, look, I think in 79 she was still with Ike. Really? <laughs> Wait, is that? I think so. Yeah, um, I could be wrong, but I think that I could... Yeah, it's I'm, not that yeah. she couldn't do something this hard or this angry. It's the words themselves. I don't yeah. think the lyrics... She would have had to change the lyrics. Yeah, she wouldn't sing those words. Yeah. She would not have been able to get the same gigs. It would not have been a hit because it wouldn't have been on the radio. So I don't think it would have appealed to her in that way. I, don't, I just don't think she would have been able to do it. Even if she did like it, she would have said, sure, but I'm going to change this lyric and then mm. Heathcote Williams or whatever would have said forget it the lyrics have to stay closer to my original I feel like Marian Faithful doesn't give a crap so she no. <laughs> she's gonna sing these lyrics the first time I heard it I was like whoa well it's not even it's not a song even when she does it there's no melody she just talks it's a poem that's why the music I think is just the three chords repeating all the time with yeah she's not even particularly in meter when she sings it when she, she intones this poem for Tina Turner to do it there would have to have been a melody I don't even think it scans that well as a poem poems don't have to scan but I think Heathcote Williams 
just wanted to meet you. To... <laughs> I'm not sure. It's, it's a poem to me that's been set to a. I love the back. I love the backing track on this too. It's fantastic. It's well, just the three chords. When you said before that Barry Reynolds was guitarist who worked with Sly and Robbie, this is the song that makes sense for. It. And yeah, really, yeah. To have, really, if you're going to be on Island Records, you had to have a reggae song, and this was it. It's just the three chords over and over again. But as she gets to the end of each stanza or verse or whatever you want to call it, it's getting more and more intense. Absolutely, yeah. So for the couple of people who are listening to this episode who hadn't heard this song before, this is sung from the male's perspective. There's a lot of, why'd you do it, she said. So it's the guy who's recalling how he'd gone and confessed to his girlfriend or wife that he'd had an affair and she's not having any of it. She has absolutely so furious and justifiably so this is not michael douglas having the affair and we're watching fatal attraction we're supposed to sympathize with him we know he's the bastard and she's letting him have it coming back to that live album that i mentioned before blazing away she sings this song and at the end of it after the crowd applauds she says oh, i feel better now <laughs> this is cathartic but it really is a cathartic and song and yeah, she recites his poetry or sings it, however you want to say it. She throws herself into this, and she did act in a number of films yeah. as well in the late 60s. And or like even into recent years, there was this great film, Arena Palm. So she yeah, was yeah. an actress. Yeah, And she could do this. So this was as much about her being an actress and delivering those lines, but... This is a brutal song, but she does both sarcastic and directly furious. Is that line? Are we out of love now? Is this just a bad patch? Through to the directly furious. Every time I see your dick, I see her cunt in my bed. I'm going to have to put a warning at the start. You've got to talk about the lyrics because they're it. You've got Barry Reynolds doing, uh, it's almost every time she swears, he puts this kind of spidery Captain Beefheart little guitar thing in there to, to say, <laughs> hey, she just swore, let me do this as well. Just like to give you a little jar. <laughs> it's, I, mean, she's, I mean, she swears a lot for the time. I mean, that track was taken off the Australian, first Australian version of right. this album. It wasn't there. What actually happened was the record company, I think it was EMI who released it down here, was so stupid that they said, right, well, we can't put it on the album, but if you want to hear it, we'll put it on a seven-inch single that we include in the album sleeve, so you have to make a direct thing to listen to this song. Yeah, right. It's just, it's nuts. If you try to find a second-hand copy of the record, Mm. then you'll find that no one's got the seven-inch single included in the album sleeve, and yet you've got the rest of the record, which just stops it working class here. Well, yeah, I mean, my copy's a British copy, so it's okay. Lucky for you. Yeah, I know. I kept my CD. (laughs) I have a CD, yeah, I have the CDs. Terry, you were saying that when you first heard this song, you were thinking, uh... What's going on here? I mean, were you listening in polite company? Were you listening around your, your parents? <laughs> no, no. I was in my car. With I your daughter just... in the car? <laughs> no. <laughs> I was, but I was just, just my dog. I, I held my hands over his ears. But uh, I just was like, whoa, hello. You know, because <laughs> there's, it's, the language is raw. It's yeah. raw. The song that it reminded me of was that song, that Alanis Morissette song that you want yeah. to know. And that mm. one seemed pretty rough for the time because it's like she does talk about does she go down on you in a theater blah 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 you know and stuff like that and there's Mm. her nails on your back or something like that so it's definitely very sexual and then it's also very angry but this one whoa (laughs) (laughs) then the barbed wire (laughs) 
Mm. <laughs> like, hey, they, you know, this is uh, pretty serious. But, but, but uh, you know, it's honest because people do get like that if they've been cuckolded or being cheated on. These things get said, especially for the time. We're sort of a bit desensitized to it now because of all the rap stuff and all, mm. everything else. So it doesn't particularly sound shocking to me now. And I probably wouldn't have that much then. I was well into Derek and Clive at that stage, so I didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, oh, now I'm going to have the horn in my head for the rest of the day. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, i horn. I'll invite you back onto a show where we talk about Derek and Clive. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> well, it's some good songs on there. Oh, there are. Yeah. Jump, you fucker, jump. Anyway. So, Carrie, just was allowed in America this song. Uh, I know that it's probably a bit later on when you where you heard it. You probably didn't hear it in 79 because you would have been too young. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think I was. And then, and I didn't have the album time. So I would never have heard it on the radio. So honestly, I didn't hear it until I was listening to prepare for this show. I had heard most of the rest of the album, but I had not heard this song. Yeah. And Morris kept making jokes about it, about oh. how, well, we're going to have, we're going to do that song too. And I thought, oh my God, what's this song? You know, <laughs> I listened to it and I thought, wow. But it's interesting because despite, I mean, it's really vulgar and everything. Yeah. But then there's also what you do what you said ain't nothing to laugh you just tore all our kisses right in half why'd you do what she said ain't nothing to laugh you just tore all our kisses right in half that's really heartbreaking you really broke my heart it's raw it really is yeah, she's one pissed off girlfriend that's for sure that's a lyric that says i really loved you all the other stuff the crude language but <laughs> that is really saying Yes, exactly. <laughs> You're a dog. <laughs> that point does say that it has an emotional heart yeah. as well as being a, a reactionary heart. So. Yeah. Just imagine, that's the final song on the album, and that's what you're left with, but it's all going to be okay tomorrow morning. No, th- it's not going to be okay tomorrow morning. No, it's definitely if you not. Put the, you put the album again at the start, you're going to be listening to Broken English. You're yeah. going to keep it on this side, you're going to be hearing the heartbreaking tale of a woman who possibly commits suicide in the Ballad of Lucy Jordan. Based on the albums that I listened to after this, she does get heartbreaking, but it's never as angry as this. But there's some yeah. really other great albums out there, so uh, Strange yeah. Weather. There's a new album, which I only like caught a couple of songs. It's called Negative Capability, but her voice is really she's really struggling but not as bad as bob dylan's voices nowadays yeah. so she redoes witches song on right. this new album but it has a cello in it it's more mournful shall i see you tonight sister bathed in magic grease shall we meet on the hilltop where the two roads meet yeah. rather than being a celebratory song that it is on this album, the one minorly celebratory song that. Well, it's it's probably the only song that you could call beautiful too. You know, it's a beautiful kind of construction and melody and mm. uh, very simple chords, but they're kind of really pretty.
yes, this yeah. lyrics aren't particularly, but it's the one little glimmer of, as you were saying earlier, it's a glimmer of kind of hope in the whole thing. It's a song I think that celebrates being an outsider. I mean, on the surface about witches and danger is great joy, dark is bright of fire, lonely is our world. I love the fact that it's saying we might not fit in with mainstream society, but we have our own society. We don't need these people. Yeah. And it, it could be a celebration of any group of outsiders. So I mm-hmm. think that's a nicer way of going out on then why'd you do it? Let's be nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I really like that song a lot. I mean, it's probably one of my favourites on the album. So any final thoughts? Anything you want to sum up with? Yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed diving more deeply into it than I had when it came out. It was nice to hear other tracks that I hadn't heard at the time because at the time I heard Broken English, The Ballad of Lucy Jordan, I heard Working Class Hero and Guilt. Those are the ones that I had heard before. The others I had not. So that was nice. And then just hearing a little of the history. And I had no idea she was living on the street until I... I thought, oh my gosh, that's that's horrible. She got back with this because this was huge. Good for her for, uh, well, she didn't completely get through it because she relapsed again after this. Because it says that she's in McLean Hospital, which is actually close to where I live. It's a psychological, it's a mental hospital. I think she went there for addiction after this album. But hopefully that did it, you know. <laughs> she did have health problems over the years. But yes, as you say, Shane, she is still here and she makes a great interview of her watched a few online yeah so clever and she just looks up back on her life with a mixture of well you know that happened but here i am and this is what i think and she's funny it's a shame that she had to have all that tragedy happen to her life but she's come through it with a lot of good humor she got to play god on absolutely fabulous right (laughs) she calls this album her her masterpiece and i think she's probably right it is like i said it's like the dam came open and it gave her a career that's still going so good on her and i still think it sounds great i hadn't played it for a long time and i should have but you know there's so many other things to do put it on and it's still got that fat warm kind of sound it's a big part of it for me is how good it sounds it's not particularly of its time this in are a little bit a lot of the songs are kind of bluesy in a, in a way and so that appeals to me which even that would have been different for her even if yeah. it had been just a straight out sort of bluesy band sort of album i wonder whether there's a classic albums episode on this because if yeah, there i think there would be yeah yeah it is a classic album for sure mm. I, I remember seeing it when she did that 20th century blues album she, she came here to do some shows and she was interviewed by the wonderful Kerry ann kennelly if you've ever seen two women who despised each other i don't know if it's on youtube or anything but it, it, i watched it i was pissing myself laughing she dealt with Kerry ann kennelly very nicely thank you <laughs> good on her so i just thought i'd leave you with that one <laughs> oh, So I want to give a huge thanks to both of you for taking the time to talk on this episode about Marion Faithful's Broken English. I'd love it if we did another trio show sometime in the new year. That'll be great. We'll find something that we all want to do. Beautiful. Um, so Shane, how can people find you? We have Facebook pages and websites for both the Shane Pacey Trio and the Bondi Cigars. Don't I can't reel them off, but you know, everyone knows how to search these days, don't they? Kerry, tell me you're going to write something very soon. We need your words of wisdom. <laughs> I really am going to start again. <laughs> right. 
So if people want to read your existing writings, they're still there. ProwlerNeedsAJump.wordpress.com it's a, a mix of a lot of different styles of film. Everything, really. Horror, silence, <laughs> classic films, just everything. And even the Harry Nilsson film. I did. Yes, I wrote about is. that. Who is Harry Nilsson and why is everybody talking about him? Mm, that's great. After so our podcast. End of November 2019. There's going to be a newly released album of Harry's final recordings in the 90s that most people didn't even know existed. So wow. that'll be exciting. Looking forward to hearing that hearing some hairy brilliance next month very quickly because it's december it's the wrap-up of the year favorite first time listens or favorite discoveries of the year so this is where i get a couple of other people we talk about the albums that we heard for the first time this year not necessarily 2019 albums although i might have a few of those so i'll be speaking with the great music journalist jeff jenkins and i'll be speaking with the author of the australian encyclopedia of rock and roll in mcfarlane and they'll be uh, talking about their favorite discoveries of this year and i'll be talking with my son max bishtinsky we'll be talking about our favorite first time listens of the year he did such a fantastic job last month talking about the album by the band Cardiacs, Sing to God. So uh, he said, can I come back? I said, absolutely. So we'll be talking about our favourite first time listens of 2019. Looking forward to that in December. So until next month, please listen to some uh, wonderful music. Catch up with Broken English if you haven't already done so or you haven't listened to it in a long time and maybe catch up with some of her uh, albums that came after this because um, they're well worth your time. Until then, be nice to each other because the world really needs us to be nice to each other at this stage. I'm rattling on. All right, everyone, look after yourself. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, 
and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.